This is Alicia Free, a badass belly dancer, musician, and real food enthusiast, here to help you feel a little lighter. It is such a pleasure to welcome Rachel Bryce to A Little Lighter. There's a beautifully written bio of Rachel on her website, www.rachelbryce.com, in the About section. So I'm going to share it with you piece by piece as we take a little journey through the career and life of belly dance fusion icon Rachel Bryce. Before we dive into this truly precious piece of belly dance history, this interview with Rachel Bryce, I want to say that I've been honored to be recording these interviews and releasing them as podcasts for our belly dance community ever since 2017. And this is the final episode that I will create of A Little Lighter. So thank you all who've been with me along the way. Thank you for those who are just now discovering this podcast. You have a treasure chest of past podcasts to open up and enjoy at aliciafree.com. And they're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other great places that you listen to podcasts. Incredibly insightful interviews from some of the most incredible dancers in our time. So please scroll back to past episodes, open up what excites you, and keep all this belly dance magic flowing. Reach out to me on Instagram, Facebook, all that good stuff. I'm there. I am absolutely delighted to share all of this with you. Rachel Bryce first fell in love with belly dance at 16 years old when she saw a group who later became Hobby Rue at a Renaissance fair and started classes immediately. Soon after, she discovered a video of Suhaila Salampur, which she obsessively studied. She began... making her living by performing American cabaret belly dance at restaurants and teaching yoga while putting yourself through school. So welcome to the show, Rachel. It's so awesome to have you here. Thank you so and, much. Thanks for having uh, me. Yes. I remember hearing you say something like, I used to think belly dance wasn't about being sexy, but come on, just being young is sexy. And <laughs> really struck me. I didn't realize that before you said that, Rachel, before I heard you say that. And you yeah. and I were just a few years apart in age. And after I heard you say that, I started seeing dancers that are in their 20s in a new light. What do you want your dance to say about you now at this point in your life and career? So I'm challenging a lot of my own BS right now. It's really easy to have ideas about what something's going to be like when you arrive there. But destinations are rarely like you anticipate they're going to be. And that's how aging has been. When I was younger, I thought women should embrace aging. I feel differently about my appearance and I'm not always proud of the way I feel about it. It's different than I thought. Right. We think, oh, I'm going to be this way when I'm older. You get there and you're like, I don't care to be that way. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's really easy to look at someone and say, if they did A, B or C, they would be shining, you know, and then you live your life and you're like, oh, The thing that I didn't anticipate was that I would ever have less energy because I always had the energy of five people. I don't have as much as I used to, and I'm motivated by very different things. A lot of times younger people want to be like, you're 50 years young. You're like, no, I am 50 years old. There is something to be said for having lived through decades. We just need to find a place in our culture that celebrates experience. And I feel like Mm -hmm. a lot of times there's this huge rift between older generations and younger generations because both of them are defending themselves instead of the older generations being fascinated and excited about 
the changes that are happening and the younger generations being excited about what people learned in the past. I think Gen Z is amazing and I'm super excited by the changes that they're making and they seem to be really appreciating elders too. So I think some change is on the horizon for the relationship between younger and older generations. So I'm looking forward to that. I read this book that was written in the 1800s. I was reading a part of it and it was saying, oh, the younger people, they don't appreciate what they have and they don't appreciate the wisdom of their elders. And I was like, oh my God, these are all just life stages. This isn't like a snapshot in time. It's just humans aging and that's what we do. It was so interesting to realize that that could be what's going on. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And when I was in high school, I remember thinking my life is probably never going to be this good again, probably never going to have this much time to myself again, because I was going through this incredible phase when I turned 16. And I remember thinking, how can I really appreciate this? So I get what you're saying about older folks being like, you don't appreciate it. It's like, well, I didn't either even when I tried to appreciate it. I think that it's really Gen Z that's making us realize so much because I'm of the previous generation where when I was dancing in nightclubs and restaurants and meeting people from the Middle East, they were like, wow, how did you get interested in my culture? That's so cool. And then their kids come along and are like, wait a minute, you're going to make fun of my parents and then you're going to wear a bindi? I don't think so. So this next generation is speaking up in a way that their parents hadn't. And I wasn't there when that shift happened. I was happily on a plane somewhere thinking that opinions are fixed in time and space. And when I started reading, the Bindi is a really great example of how many different feelings there are about a cultural object and what that object represents. I mean, there's no way that you could say that everyone from India feels A, B, or C. There's so many different feelings about it. And yeah, so the more I'm learning, the more I'm realizing that whatever I do, I need to investigate it and learn enough to where I feel comfortable with doing it, but also still be open to the fact that I could learn more and need to let it go. Here's the big challenge. You know, as long as I'm more interested or as interested in how my actions affect other people as I am in how they feel about me, I think that there's the opportunity to learn. But if I'm defending myself like we're going to do, then I lose that opportunity. So, yeah, I sure hope that I find something that I feel is a respectful homage that brings people together that I'm as in love with as I was with some of the previous incarnations of the dance that I was doing because, man, I had so much fun. It's so much fun. I loved it so much. And I still love it, but I just haven't found the pants that fit, I guess. Mm Mm-hmm. I remember the first time I went to India, I had studied there when I was 20 and I was living in Delhi with a family. And I remember realizing if I asked all three of the neighbors living next to each other in this place here, they would all tell me something completely different about why the person on the street is doing what they're doing. You yeah. know what I mean? It was just yeah. so, so different when you brought up the bindi and everything. I was like, oh. God, that that would be really interesting to dig into and ask like 15 people from India what they think. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you could actually do that right now. There was an article on, oh God, it was a feminist magazine and I can't remember the name of it. I can send it to you after this, but they posted it on Facebook 
And they were talking about how it's offensive to wear it and here's why. And then a bunch of women got on there and they were like, I don't find it offensive. And another one's like, it's totally offensive. And all these women from India were having this discussion on this thread written by an American who is, you know, the authority on how people feel about the Vindi. <laughs> and I thought it was such a great illustration, just like you're talking about, like, okay, you ask three people and you're going to get three different opinions. I mean, we know with our culture, like how do belly dancers feel about gold coin belts? Like, well, a lot of belly dancers feel a lot of ways about it. But then when it's another people, I'm just mortified when I think about even just two years ago or something where I would ask someone from Egypt, how do Egyptian dancers feel about fill in the blank? And now I'm just like, did I really? Oh my God. I can't believe <laughs> I'm going to expect him to speak for all Egyptians everywhere. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I think we're getting a much bigger perspective. I'm hoping. It seems like we are in terms of just how many different ways people can feel. Yeah. Like you were saying with Gen Z, just the honesty and the directness of a lot of things. It's really amazing. Yeah. They're so great. I love the fashion mm -hmm. that's happening. And I love the challenges around gender that they're bringing up. And I think they're doing really important work. I interviewed Suhaila Salampour on this podcast back in episodes 38 and 44, and we talked about the history of belly dance and where we are now. What are some of the changes that you have seen in belly dance since you started dancing in the 90s? I think my answer is going to be less about the actual dance and more about the community, I think. Because of the loss of so many venues, we don't have the same kind of Middle Eastern restaurants in America that we did before 9-11. The community has really decided to keep it going through all of these festivals and theater shows. And in a lot of cases, it's dancers dancing for each other. And maybe you get five or six husbands or boyfriends or kids that were dragged there. But generally speaking, instead of us dancing for non-dancers the way it was in the 80s and before, we're really doing a lot for one another. And it's just a testament, I think, to how much we love this dance. No audience? Fine. We'll do it for each other then. And I think that's pretty amazing that we've figured out a way to keep it going. I believe you are a person who fully embraces your shadow self. So mm -hmm. I think you'll also appreciate this question. What are yeah. some of the unfortunate ways you have seen belly dance change since you started dancing in the 90s? Well, one thing for sure that I really miss is the large number of musicians hanging out on a regular basis and playing music together in the Bay Area in the late 90s. When I went to school for a dance ethnology at San Francisco State, one of the awesome extras that I didn't expect when I moved there was that I would meet this large group of people that not only hung out all the time, but were constantly learning and growing and striving to be better. And I learned so much about practice from these people. One of my favorite things was that Tobias Roberson, who was my boyfriend at the time, had created this life where he would play music all day, then he would teach, and then he would do gigs. And when he was hired to play a show, people were just basically seeing him do what he did all the time anyway. And I remember thinking that that was such a huge difference. Rather than practicing for a show, I felt like people got to see a snippet of his life. 
And he didn't have to prepare for his show because he was always playing for hours. I had such a struggle with practice, but I started to develop a practice at that time as a result of hanging out with him. And their bar for excellence was so high and they were constantly playing music together. It's like Dan Cantrell of the Toys and Peter Jakes of Brass Menagerie and a whole crew of people that were just constantly playing music together. And so the people I was doing shows with were also my best friends. And that was an amazing time. And I really miss that. And there are small pockets of musicians, but because dancers use recorded music so much, you know, they don't get a chance to work as much as they would like to. And so they have to turn their attention to, quote, real pursuits. And there's not as many musicians out there. So there's not as many people seeing the music and getting bitten by the bug. And it was a romantic time that I hope can have a resurgence at some point just because it's so enjoyable to have a community like that. I hear you. When I started dancing in 2000, there was this beautiful community of musicians because it's Cornell University. I live in Ithaca, New Mm. York, where Cornell is. And we had all of these musicians from the Middle East that would come Mm -hmm. in here to study for five years doing their PhD. And they would learn Kanun and they would embrace all of these things that they had been listening to throughout their childhood, even if they hadn't been musicians before. And uh, we would perform and we'd have 13 people on stage, you know, in the Middle Eastern ensemble that I was in. And it was so amazing. And now there are still six of us that play music together. We've been playing together for a while, but so many people don't ever have that experience, right? So many dancers never have the experience of working with musicians. Yeah. And so many musicians have given up. (laughs) Yeah, they've had to. Yeah. Yeah. That and the places to play. Mm -hmm. Even though some of those restaurants were, you know, they had their challenges. I don't know if you were ever a restaurant dancer, but I certainly didn't feel like they were romantic at the time. But now looking back on that life and those experiences, it feels romantic to me now. I never danced in restaurants. There are no restaurants to dance in in Ithaca. Oh, you haven't. Oh, interesting. I've never had that part of the belly dance life. How did you see it? How did I see belly dance? Yeah. so funny. I don't even remember the first time I saw belly dance, but it was a phys ed class at Cornell. Oh my gosh. So you tried it the first time you saw it? I think so. I don't remember ever actually seeing it. I just remember being intrigued. And I was a distance runner and I'd sprained my ankle so many times. I was like, I got to do something else. Okay, how about uh-huh. I start belly dancing? There's and this. Just, I'll try this. Yeah. And it's yeah. just like something I just want to do for the rest of my life. And I've done for 22 years, you know. And, wow. I mean, hobbyist, complete hobbyist. But yeah. It's, well, um, clearly a hobbyist that takes it seriously. You have a podcast. Well, I just love it. I love yeah. talking to dancers, you know, and it's like Rachel. I mean, God, how many years have I been admiring you? And I get to talk to you right now and share Aww. your voice with other people and ask questions that I think are more. going to light people up. No, it's so, so, so exciting. <laughs> I'm right with you on the mourning the loss of musicians in venues, though. When I started dancing in clubs, I learned what works for dancers that are established in a club and what doesn't work. And the first thing that doesn't work is not meeting the dancers before you go to the owner, as you can imagine. Once I moved to the Bay Area, I went to the dancers and said, hey, if you ever need a sub, you know, I would love to sub. And next thing you know, they're calling me all the time. I don't want to go. Will you dance for me? And then ended up being really good friends with the dancers and loving my relationship with them as much, if not more than the actual experience of performing for the audience. 
And Nana Candelaria, who became a dear friend of mine, was telling me that back in the day when she started, because she had been dancing for like 25 years when I met her, she said when she started, the dancers used to put cigarette burn holes in each other's costumes. They were trying to take each other down. And it did not feel like that at all. We would hang out, we'd drink wine, we'd laugh. And next thing you know, we'd go collaborate for fun for some show outside of the restaurant. It was a great experience. But that was also because the owner of that restaurant was a lovely person. Culture is often built from the top down. A decade after you started dancing, you discovered Carolina Naricchio's Fat Chance Belly Dance Style, FCBD Style, formerly known as HES or American Tribal Style. And when I interviewed Carolina back in episode 58 of this podcast, she said something I really liked. She said, successful patterns repeat themselves. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us some of the ways that Carolina and FCBD style has changed your patterns? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, she changed everything. At some point, I was in love with Suhela's technique in Dances for the Sultan. And if you haven't seen it, you need to go buy it right away because everyone needs to own this piece of American belly dance history. Just stunning, amazing technique. And I wanted to be exactly like her until I saw a video of myself trying to be like her. And then I was like, oh, that doesn't look the same. (laughs) So that was my first experience of, oh, looks good on one person, doesn't necessarily look natural and right on another person. And I just couldn't find my place. And then I saw Carolina. And the first thing that I really resonated with was the posture, was the way that she held her neck and how high her chin was and how long her neck was and how pressed down her shoulders were and how lifted the chest was. She just looked like royalty to me. And immediately I resonated with that. She had a huge smile. And then of course the jewelry, fell in love with the jewelry. And then the way that the body line worked with the jewelry And later, when I learned a little bit more about Masha Archer's intentions with the dance, I understood why it looked the way that it did. But at the time, all I felt was just what's happening feels right. And it didn't change my love for Suhela's approach to technique and to drum solo and sort of more of a American cabaret technique, but I fell in love with the whole chest, shoulder, arm, neck, head relationship that I saw in Fat Chance and the whole aesthetic. So I immediately started learning Fat Chance style. And basically, I never thought about it this way before, but in some ways you could think of it as like what I was working on was Fat chance from the waist up and Salimpore from the waist down kind of a thing, I guess, because I really loved the posture and the presentation. And I also loved the improvisational vocabulary, but it didn't change my love for like a shape driven, isolation heavy drum solo where you're not pulling from a vocabulary, you're dancing shapes. So yeah, the patterns that I started working with became more about applying some of the principles that I saw in what Fat Chance was doing to what I was already doing. And I asked permission from Carolina about that because what I was doing was so heavily influenced by her that I said, are you okay with me kind of building an entire life on what you have done, but changing it? And she was like, yeah, sure. Thanks for asking. (laughs) So I think she's happy to be asked. 
and appreciates the respect because, yeah, she basically changed everything. And then Jill Parker, who I also know that you interviewed, Jill Parker added another dimension to that. So she was just coming out of her eight years with Fat Chance, maybe a year or two into her next project. And she was trying to move away from structured improvisation and was moving more towards what she was calling belly dance theater at the time. And it was very Bay Area. You know, there was fire dancing and we're wearing shredded fabric and painting our eyes black and the head wraps came off and the cholis came off and things got very sinister. And, oh God, I was in love with it, in love with it. And that kind of broke because before Jill, you had to choose a side. It was what was called tribal at the time. You're either tribal or you're cabaret. And there was no fusion. And Jill just kind of blew the doors off everything. And I think the first time I saw anyone doing it, I think it was the Rakasa performance at 2000, where Sharon Kihara was in this performance too. They all came out in what we were all expecting at head wraps and cholis and skirts. And she came out and had like 30 people in the troupe or something. And after the first song, half of them left and finished out their thing. And then Jill and a number of dancers came back on without head wraps or cholis. And I remember the feeling. I was like, oh, I don't think I like that. Oh, no. Like, you're not allowed. This is not allowed. You know, because everyone was wearing head wraps at the time. Even then, it was Paulette's group who I saw wearing flowers in their hair. But that was after, I think. So nobody was doing that. So basically, all of these different patterns, and all of it really comes from Jamila. I just always continually circle back to Jamila, the vibe that she created. But yeah, Carolina's group changed everything. And then Jill changed that. And yeah, Jill Parker. She was up here in upstate New York for years. So I was so yeah. spoiled. I'd be like, Jill, can I take you out? Yeah. I miss her. She moved back to San Francisco. But I'm going to ask you another question about Jill. This is a great continuation of what you were just talking about. Mm. So around the same time that you discovered FCVD style and Jill Parker became your technique inspiration, what was it about Jill's technique that inspired you? Oh, what isn't it about Jill's technique? I mean- right. My God. Oh, please, Jill Parker. My God. I think one of the main things was I always felt like I was scrawny and I'm embracing the way that I was built now. I know there's room for all of us. But at the time, I had this idea of what a belly dancer was supposed to look like. And I didn't look like that naturally. I mean, the first dancer that I saw was super curvy. And what I really responded to was the reverb of her costume, like she had tassels on and calls them movement extenders. Her movement extenders <laughs> were bouncing off of her curves. And I was like, I think that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. And then I started dancing and I felt like I didn't have that reverb. And I wanted to look like other people. I wanted to have a belly. I wanted to have softness. I wanted to be curvier. And when I saw Jill, it was the first time that I had ever seen that really like lithe, muscular serpentine, like that muscular rippling that happens when a cat is hunting or a snake is slithering, that intense ripple that was accentuated by her belly tattoos, by the grapes that she had tattooed. You could see the skin sort of sliding over the muscle. And I was like, oh, yeah. And so I, for the first time, saw a way forward. And I saw Jill's slow stuff too. And that was huge because 
it is so much work to dance slow like that and to have it look and feel weightless and to have no break in the energy in the torso. And because she had just been doing the fat chance vocabulary for eight years, it was completely effortless for her. She's as close to perfection as I've ever seen. And she has this crazy rotation in her shoulder joints where I'm like, does she even have an acromion process? Like her upper arm bone, I feel like doesn't bump up against any other bones. And she could just keep rotating her arms forward, which means that her elbows can go really high with no effort. And mine can't. I'm like bone on bone. So there were so many things about watching Jill that opened up all kinds of possibilities. And falling in love with the slow stuff, where in the American cabaret restaurant world, the slow stuff was really, really sexy and sultry and hands in the hair and peeling away the veils. And I love watching other dancers do that, but it doesn't really feel like personal expression for me. And so Jill's slow stuff to me looked like hunting, like a cat when it's in the bushes and it's slowly creeping forward. And it was menacing and weird and fabulous. And I was like, oh my God, it changed everything. It made me feel crazy. I remember at the time <laughs> saying, I just feel like I got punched in the gut and the face at the same time. Like Jill's dancing just punched me everywhere in the front and I was out. So yeah, yeah, it changed everything. The first time I heard of Jill Parker was through friends that are from here in Ithaca. And one of them, Tessa Trueheart, Tessa Myers, when I interviewed her on this podcast, she was quoting Farida, you must dance like a cat. And someone was like, oh, like a cat, like a cute little kitty cat. And she was like, no, like a cat that is sunning itself on a rock after it has eaten her prey and is completely satiated. And I was thinking like, that's how Jill dances. She's just like so satisfied, you know? Yeah, that's one side of it. The other side is she's hungry. And you better yeah, move. true. <laughs> but yeah, cat-like for sure. Yeah. And then in addition to all that movement that was really uniquely hers, she also was interested in fashion. I was in her dance company for a while and you'd go to her place where she had classes and she had W Magazine all over the place and she had pictures all over her walls. And she was fusing belly dance with flamenco. She had a dancer friend named... Carola, they had a dance company called Zambra Bailar Yala, and they actually got into the ethnic dance festival here, doing a choreography together in their respective styles. So she was really pushing the envelope in a number of ways, but also fusing it with pop culture, which I hadn't seen before. And I had always felt like I was rejecting my culture at first, just like, oh, you know, I don't care what Americans are doing, whatever. I'm going to do this other thing. And then Jill was somehow reintegrating it in an interesting way. So yeah, she just changed what the rules were and what I thought was possible in so many ways. You earned a bachelor's degree in dance ethnology where you studied Kathak with Chitresh Das, flamenco with Rosa Montoya, Odissi with Vishnu Tatva Das, and Dunham Techniques with Alicia Pierce. You started to mix these dance forms when San Francisco culture and your 10 years as a restaurant dancer. Was there some connection between these dance styles that motivated you to study and fuse them? Oh, that's interesting. Well, I didn't take the dances with the intention of fusing them. But 
when you practice other dance forms and then you improvise, sometimes they just end up in there. I was just taking classes with people who were teaching dance forms that I thought were beautiful and that I was fascinated by. I didn't realize that Katak was actually a big aesthetic influence in Carolina's style, but all of the fat chance spins and at the beginning, a lot of that is inspired by Chitrish as well. He was famous in the Bay Area. I saw more of a connection between Odissi flamenco and belly dance, but before I took flamenco, I thought I might fuse more flamenco into what we were doing because there's so much of it in the posture and the arms in what Fat Chance does. But then when I took flamenco with Rosa Montoya, I was like, no, I can't. (laughs) This is a whole other lifetime of study. I might be able to take some inspiration from the body line, but it's not really fusing flamenco. I don't know how to describe it. It's like taking one tiny little element, but Yeah, after 18 weeks of flamenco, I was like, oh, no, I don't know anything about flamenco. And I can't really say with any confidence that I was fusing it. So, yeah, I think the stuff that I practiced the most ended up in all of the other stuff that I was doing. I kind of want to go back and look at these bios again, because as my understanding of what I was doing is deepening and also as I'm attempting to more deeply understand what culture means to individuals that are raised with it, it's changing the way that I feel about how I fuse. And I don't want to rewrite my history to make it palatable. You know, I could see that it would sound like that, but I have a lot of journals so I can actually read what I was feeling at the time, especially around that period, because there was so much exploration going on. But I think sometimes when you write a bio and you're trying to explain what it is that you do to people that may not have seen it before, it's very easy to go for really broad strokes. So yeah, hearing that in the about section, I'm like, ooh, maybe I need to go put a little more subtlety back in that (laughs) bio. Because yes, I was influenced by all of these, but I feel weird saying that I fused these styles because they fused me, really. I mean, you dance a style and it ends up in you. And that's really, I think, one of the most interesting ways to play. Well, I loved that part of your bio because those are people that I was not familiar with too. So I was Ah. able to go and research them. So I thought that was really helpful. Like Dunham Technique. I knew nothing about Dunham Technique. Oh Um, man, amazing. That's what I love about that part of your bio. Oh yeah, I would definitely not take the names out. I mean, those people, Alicia Pierce, she's not with us anymore. She's amazing, man. Did I try hard in that class? I mean, Dunham Technique, really, that's really largely responsible for shifting the way that I thought about practice, too, because a lot of what I learned in school from these teachers was about the dance form. Yeah, but I had no idea how to practice. That was my biggest challenge is how do you get the stuff in your body? Do you just repeat it over and over? Like, do I just ignore my mistakes? Do I arrange a practice ahead of time? Or do I just do what I feel like doing in the moment? Or, you know, how do you organize something that becomes efficient, that gets you from point A to point B when you need to get there in college? I booked this huge, beautiful dance space for three hours to practice. And I went in there and I didn't know what to do. Because I was just trying to establish a maintenance practice. I wasn't practicing for a specific show. It wasn't a particular vocabulary. It wasn't for dancing 
for a set group of people. It was just purely for improvement and personal achievement and growth and maintenance. And I had no idea what to do in there. I put on music and I improved for a while. And then I would just kind of focus in on a couple of things that sort of caught my attention, but I never felt like I was getting any traction. So Dunham technique was huge in considering how to approach a practice. You could just see how precise and how beautiful your technique has been for so many years, how much you practiced, how much you thought yeah, about did. it, how much yeah, you I did. looked at it over and over again. You know, I really admire that. Well, nothing <sighs> ever made me feel that way. Even boys. And I loved boys. I loved looking at them and listening to men talk, but I did not love them as much as I loved watching belly dance technique. Belly dance technique, when done well, would make me feel insane. It gave me feelings that I can't explain. <laughs> and I think most belly dancers know what I'm talking about, where you go watch a show and when somebody hits it, you're just like, oh my God, you just lose your mind. And I just loved reaching for it. And every once in a while, I'm like, oh, you know, I've been in this relationship with the dance form for like, oh my God, how long? 88, what, like 36 years or something. And I keep thinking, yeah, maybe I don't feel that way. And then I'll watch Heather dance, Heather, who's in Portland here, and just be like, oh, I'm going to scrape my skin off. She's so beautiful. Like, <laughs> I still get that feeling about belly dancers that move me. I mean, yes, there was definitely an element of like, I should practice, which never worked for me because the more I'd be like, <laughs> you have to, you must, then it just became a chore. But then when it was like, oh my God, this is so fun. I love it so much. And I'm learning something and oh my God, I love this drum solo and I'm achieving it. It was so fun to practice. So yeah, I ended up making a practice regimen because as fun as it was to practice, I did not have 20 hours a day to practice and half of that time was just wandering around the room figuring out what I wanted to do. So yeah, that's how it came about. I mean, that's not the thing that floats everybody's boat. And I don't think it has to be. One of the first times I worked with Donna Mejia, all the teachers that she hired for her summer event were required to adhere to certain principles. And she would give you the sheet of paper when you first arrived and you would read it and agree to it. And I remember where I was standing. It had such impact. There is one line in these principles that said, it is not up to you to determine or judge what someone else's dance experience means to them. Mm. And I was like, oh my God. And I mean, such a huge impact on me because I think most of us assume that our perspective is just like, this is what dance is or what dance is supposed to be or what your priorities should be or what's most important. And I remember reading that and being like, oh my God, I don't know why someone else is dancing. I don't know what their <laughs> path is. Therefore, how could I tell someone else what their practice should be or what they should be working on or what their hierarchy of importance should be? So that was really humbling, but also opened up a lot for me. And People are like, oh, yeah, people that dance for social reasons. And I'm like, oh, God, that's just terrible. How could you? Isn't that from what we know, the origin of the dance is like to bring people together and to dance at a party and to enjoy each other's company. I mean, a lot of people would be like, how dare you focus on technique and westernize this stuff? You know, I think as long as there's something beneficial coming out of it and we're doing it with respect, then we can't know how it's going to impact each other.
You recently said, belly dance is a sort of cosplay. You said, I love the creation of a character that doesn't look like they're from any one place. And you said, I still have conflicted feelings about that. Do you have guidelines that help you see when fusing forms is appropriate and when it's not appropriate? Oh, all right. Here we go. (laughs) Put on your seatbelts, ladies and gentlemen. I think that when I realized the cosplay thing, I don't feel that great about that right now for myself personally. It's so multi-layered and nuanced and different every time I learn something else. But where I was at the time that I was making a lot of work and dancing all the time, I took a lot of inspiration from Federico Fellini and his Satyricon film and what he said about creating planet Rome. And what I didn't consider at the time is that he's Italian. (laughs) He could create planet Rome. I'm not from India. Creating what I wanted to be a planet India may be missing some really big pieces. And now I think that I haven't found really where I feel that my next... Okay, let me say this. I know that I'm going to land on an answer. And I know that I feel good about dancing in class and teaching what I've learned and sharing resources that I've discovered and turning students on to other teachers that are currently doing really good work. All of that makes sense to me. But as far as my own personal expression on stage as a belly dancer, I have more questions than answers right now. I don't know if you saw the most recent tour from fall, I think it was last September, October, where I went to Europe and Finland and Kazakhstan and performed. And the night before I was supposed to go on in Finland, I'm listening to all my belly dance music that I have and all of the stuff that I used to really, really love. I have learned a little too much about what that may have represented to the people playing the music or what it meant, or I've considered what it might feel like for someone not connected to the music to be dancing it. And it all felt like sort of pants that were too tight. It just felt wrong. And I'm like, well, okay, for me, belly dance has always felt very authentic for where I was in the moment. So what have I been listening to? What have I been feeling passionate about? I'm like, Bo Burnham, but you can't dance to that. You know, Bo Burnham, I felt like, I don't know if you've seen Inside on Netflix. It's considered a comedy special, but it's not funny. I mean, it's funny because it's sad, but really, it's sad. It's about everything that we're going through as a people. And it was in the middle of the pandemic. So, you know, all I've been doing is listening to Bo Burnham and learning more about our history and having all kinds of feelings about human beings. And I finally was like, you know what? I will do one weirdo witchy fusion thing, but I'm also going to do something that feels really authentic, which is a couple Bo Burnham songs. And in one of the songs, he says, I'll bother getting better when I bother getting dressed, which was, I don't know about you, but in the middle of the pandemic, that was a real thing for me. And I'm wearing all this jewelry and I'm thinking, how could I go out there and dance to I'll bother getting better when I bother getting dressed? Like, dressed to the nines. So in the song, right before my piece, I said to the three dancers in the dressing room, can you help me take this off? Can you help me take all the jewelry off? And there's three dancers on me. It's like one minute to go. And we're like, 
pulling earrings off and they're pulling stuff out of my hair because I had it all embedded in my hair. And I put on a Bruce Lee t-shirt and went out there and danced to this thing that was really expressing what I'm going through. All of that being said, I'm not a trained contemporary dancer. So I'm in this place where no dance form has ever moved me like belly dance does. And I want to respect the root of it and a huge part of the root of the dance is self-expression to the music. And generally speaking, it's music that is culturally yours and you're connecting with it. So some might say that was even more true to Rock Sharky by dancing to Bo Burnham in a Bruce Lee t-shirt than pretending to be from Egypt with this Sonny Lester album or whatever <laughs> that is not truly Egyptian. Well, it's like what you said. You took 18 weeks of flamenco to realize you're not comfortable fusing flamenco with what yeah. you're doing. Like the deeper you get into it, you're like, oh, wow, this is harder to do in the way I want to do it than I thought before, right? Yeah. Yeah. Very well put. Yeah. Thank you. I did see the video. Was it in Helsinki? That's it. Yeah, I loved that video because I was like, oh my God, Rachel still looks amazing doing all of this in a t-shirt and pants because I never imagined you doing what you do in street clothes. Yeah. Um, but it's really Me amazing to that you, like last minute you were like, I can't do this. I need to do something different and have everyone yeah. take your jewelry off. Like, wow. That's- Yeah. It was amazing. I felt weird afterwards. Let me tell you, I was like wandering around in the dressing room. I sort of felt raw and elated and excited, but also sad because the stuff Bo Burnham is talking about is devastating. It's like the possibility of the end of everything because of our obsession with buying stuff. And I just felt so torn open and I was sure I was going to hate it. I was just like, I'm just going to go be honest. And then when I enjoyed parts of it, which are the only parts that you got to see really, because not everything got online, but I was like, oh my God, I actually enjoy watching this. There's something that's still really musical about it. But I broke so many of my own rules. Like I used to have a no lyrics rule and, you know, no Western music because I felt that it didn't connect to the root of the dance and I felt like it was missing something. But then when I found out about the history of one musician in particular who was an opera singer in Egypt. And then when he came to America, the only way that he could play was if he wore this big silk oversized turban and like played the Oriental guy for Americans. Mm -hmm. And so he had to go from being this A-lister, this incredibly respected, classically trained artist to being like a caricature of himself in order for the states to accept him. I was like, oh my God, I don't know. What am I contributing to? I thought it was homage, but is it? So that's the challenge. Knowing the context, it changes everything. Mm -hmm. It's a huge, huge topic. And I thought I would be further along in my understanding by now, but I'm working continually. I'm reading continually. I'm working with a counselor specifically about understanding culture, understanding my place in my own culture. Yeah. Learning about Orientalism, learning about what Orientalism looks like, learning about respectfully borrowing and studying. And yeah, right now, I personally don't feel comfortable cosplaying a culture that exists. Like if I'm using a name or costuming that belongs to a people and they haven't invited me to use it, I don't feel comfortable using it. There may come a time where I learn something that changes that. 
So basically, I am still exploring because it's important to me and I'm still dancing and I'm still teaching, but I really don't know how to answer your question more than I don't know yet. I'll check in with me in a year. I'll let you know if I've learned anything by then. When I interviewed your friend, ceremonial botanical bodywork practitioner, Rachel Fisher, back in episode 53 of this podcast, she mentioned your appreciation for the little book of talent. And that Mm. inspired me to read the book and fall in love with the concept of smallest achievable perfection, something I can focus on and achieve rather than doing multiple things half-ass. So do you think that it's a helpful book for dancers to read, the little book of talent? I think little book of talent is an essential book for dancers to read little things like uh, when I would learn a choreography outside of the practice space, when I was working with other people, if there was a part that I didn't get, I would be like, I'll take care of that part later. And I would skip over it. And then I would never learn those parts. And then I started getting stage fright because I would push my hot spots away, the parts that I didn't know. And then I started thinking I was just bad at choreography. So things like that, stop when you make a mistake, stop and correct it. Make sure that those little hot spots are the spots that you focus on before you go on. Slow it down and break it into chunks. If something is too hard, it's either too fast or too many things. Learning the difference between soft skills and hard skills, I didn't understand that hard skills require a totally different type of practice than soft skills. And people usually say, oh, I'm an improviser or I'm a choreographer. And after reading that book, I was like, oh, no, we have a natural tendency to go for one or the other, but we can develop strength in the other one with the right kind of practice. So it's only 52 tips, but it felt so complete to me as far as answering all these questions that I had about practice. So yeah, that and also his book, The Talent Code. It's so funny because I put it into practice just last night and was talking about it today. Again, my mom and I are trying to learn the theme song for Big Bang Theory just because we watch it so much and we're tired of having it stuck in our heads without knowing parts of it because you know how infuriating that is to be like the whole world of what's that part so we decided last night we were going to learn it and so I thought okay first thing we need to do is slow it down and break it into chunks and so we did exactly what Daniel Coyle talks about in the opener of the talent code we would start from the beginning we'd go till we messed up we would focus on the mess up part make sure we did that part correctly, then go back to the beginning and then go until we messed up in a different part, fix that part. And uh, yeah, so if you're at all interested in creating a practice, and it's such a quick read, isn't it? It looks like a little gift book. It looks like something that (laughs) wouldn't have anything useful in it, but every tip is like really solid. So absolutely, yeah. I got it on audiobook and kept listening to it while I was cleaning and whatnot (laughs) and thinking about how to help my kids excel Mm -hmm. at what they're going to choose as their passion, their superpower, you know? Yeah. I loved so much of that. Oh yeah, it's great. In 2001, you were quote unquote discovered by rock mogul Miles Copeland and you toured for several years with his company, the Bellydance Superstars. And it has been really fun to interview the belly dance superstars, artistic director, Jelena on this podcast, as well as Casey Chai, who was also in BDSS. I don't know if you guys overlapped. Oh yeah. And she's a dear friend of mine. Nice. Uh, 
So that is also where you started making costumes influenced by the late 1800s and 1920s together with Marty Love. Mm-hmm. And BDSS toured the world, YouTube emerged, and a global interest in your emerging style of belly dance grew. Do you remember a moment when you realized that you were creating a legacy? Hmm. I'm still not sure. I mean, I'm acting as if it's possible, but you never know if something's going to be a fad or a legacy, really. I mean, Dunham technique should be a legacy. She left a legacy and it's dying out. And I always resisted formulaic approaches to making work. But then I realized that if I did create a formulaic approach that people would get the concepts and then they could choose to leave the concepts, but at least they would have something to sink their teeth into. And that's when I was like, okay, you know what? I feel like I could create a program where you start at square one and we know what we're going for. We know where we want to end up and I can assist people in getting there, but I have no idea what's going to happen with it. It'd be great if it continued without me, which is why I didn't name it after myself because I wanted it to belong to all of us. And I have a personal style that's different than the style that was on stage with belly dance superstars and feel like that's the style I'm really codifying and trying to simplify and just name all the component parts. I can tell you the first time that I realized that people felt that fusion was a dance form because I didn't think it was a dance form. I don't know if I thought of it as a legacy, but like, oh, people are thinking this is like a thing that has edges. And that was on MySpace. There was a dancer who said that she did cabaret. And at the time we were calling it Tribal Fusion. And she had a picture of herself in a bedla, like an Egyptian bra belt set. And then she had another picture of herself. She was wearing a coin bra and two big roses and a yarn belt with pantaloons. So this was her tribal fusion outfit. And this was her American cabaret outfit. And I remember thinking tribal fusion is not a noun. It's a verb. Like I'm fusing things and it changes every year. You can't go get your tribal fusion costume. You can't just say you do fusion unless you're studying many dance forms and fusing those with Carolina style. And that's what it meant to me at the time. But now I feel like if I hold to that opinion, I'm like a parent that's insisting that their child becomes a doctor or something. Like at a certain point, you're like, this is my child. My child will be what it is and it will grow and change in the way that it grows and changes. And then I was like, okay, well, then let's look at what I was actually doing at that time and what the component parts were and then how the constant change can happen. And the reason that I sort of settled into that was because of something my yoga teacher, Gary Craftsow said, who has completely shaped the way I feel about teaching. Like he's my number one influence in my approach to teaching. And someone asked him, what if someone comes to you and they want to learn headstand, but it's clear when looking at their posture, that's not really what they need. And my first thought was, well, you have to be authentic and you have to tell them what you think. And he thought for a while and he said, well, if you give them what they want, you will then have the opportunity to give them what they need. And I was like, what? I never considered 
that you could meet a student with the questions because they're going to have different questions the longer they study. Like you were saying earlier, the more you learn, the more you're like, oh, I started out there, but I can't do that anymore. If someone's like, oh my God, I love tribal fusion and I want to do this thing like the Indigo did in 2006 and I do this kind of dance, how disappointing would it be for me to be like, well, I don't call it like just to be an a-hole about it and then have them feel like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to get it wrong. I would just really responded to that instead of going, oh, okay, well, Rachel, why don't you take a deep breath and look at what the hell you were doing and show people that. And then after four phases, maybe you could tell them, you know what's really exciting? Not any of that. <laughs> That's just the vehicle for getting you to the juicy stuff, which is actually forgetting all about what you look like and just totally dissolving into the music and feeling so excited about what you made and what you're wearing and that you took the risk to make something you haven't seen before and that you put these things together and that you're connected with the principles of beauty rather than making a costume based on someone else's costume that you saw. You have to start somewhere. Whoa, did you just hear that? What Rachel just said was completely mind-blowing, so I'm going to repeat it. She said that the dance that she teaches is just a vehicle to get to the juicy stuff, which is actually forgetting all about what you look like and just totally dissolving into the music and feeling so excited about what you made and what you're wearing and that you took the risk to make something that you haven't seen before and that you put all these things together and that you're connected with these principles of beauty rather than making a costume based on someone else's costume that you saw. It's just amazing. So I feel very comfortable now with teaching a set style of dance that has been codified because I feel like the whole time my actual message is we're going to learn this so you can discard this if you want to eventually. So I don't know if that answers the question about legacy, but yeah, there was a moment I realized it was the thing. And at that time, I didn't get how that could actually be useful. I guess. And now I feel like I'm getting in touch with that a little more. Nice. Yeah. Carolina said something similar when they went out on stage and was it Morocco named what she was doing? Yeah. It, like Carolina hadn't put herself in that box yet. Did yeah. Other people to kind of put the box around for her to go, oh, okay. So there's something changing here. Yeah. It was one of Morocco's students said, Morocco thinks you're tribal. And at first Carolina oh, right. was like, they really got a lot of nerve naming my style, you know, but she didn't connect with at the moment, I think was that that's on the East Coast, which is where Morocco is teaching. They were using that as a descriptor for anybody that wasn't, you know, sparkly. They're all wearing stripes. Like if you go back and read all the arabesque magazines, which was like the East Coast magazine of the 70s and 80s, they would talk about, oh, this dancer is doing it in the tribal style. And she always had on stripes and like more earth tones and wasn't so sparkly. So basically, Morocco could have just been saying, oh, yeah, that group is sort of like East Coast tribal style. But it wasn't. It was a description rather than a name for a style. Those are my words, not Carolina's. Carolina's words were, wow, you're naming my style for me, huh? And then she said she thought about it later and was like, actually, you know, that makes a lot of sense. We are. We sort of are. So I love that story because you know, words can mean so many things. And for Morocco's student, I can't speak for her because I don't know what she was thinking, but I can only assume that she was just saying, yeah, Morocco recognizes your style is similar to a style of dancers we have on the East Coast. And then it changed everything over here. So it's interesting. 
American belly dance history. <laughs> da, da, da. <laughs> I think one of your gifts to our world belly dance community is your playfulness. And when you and Marty and Zoe Jakes created a show called Le Serpent Rouge, you gave many dancers a license to play. What mm. do you cherish about that show? Oh, God, so much. That show was so fun. That was one of the highlights of my entire life so far. You know, Marty and Zoe were my best friends. And so we got to just tour around. Well, there were really two different iterations of that show. We did the first one that Miles Copeland, who had put together Belly Dance Superstars, I asked him to produce a show as an offshoot, Belly Dance Superstars, and he said yes. And so the first iteration was fun, but it got really great in the second round when we did it ourselves because we went a little more scrappy. And he always wanted to produce kind of a slick professional image, which is not at all what we wanted to do. We wanted to get drunk and party on stage, basically. And we wanted the aesthetic to be every second of our day. So we got this big school bus and painted it black. And, you know, Marty and her boyfriend at the time built out the inside of it. And there was a group called the Crow Quill Night Owls and another group called the Gallus Brothers. So it was two musicians and two musicians, but they also played together as a four piece and then as duets. And what started happening in the second iteration, because we were hanging out, is their crossover started happening. So it really began to be like an old timey sort of variety show where many people wore different hats. So Zoe was doing comedy with Alex, who was the female singer in Croquill. And so they had some stuff going on. And then Marty and Zoe would start singing a little bit. And there was just so much playfulness happening. And we were laughing a lot and eating a lot of fried food and drinking a lot of whiskey. And yeah, it was a blast. So talk about feeling authentic, man. We were just dancing to music that we loved and traveling around with people that we loved. And instead of staying in hotels, we would go from house to house. People would put us up for the night. And so I met all kinds of people. It was an adventure. And there was a big rubber fake vomit trick that was always getting put on people's instruments and so their pranks and yeah shenanigans and heartbreak and love and you know all the stuff that happens when you're young and on the road it was so great it was everything I wanted being on tour to be like so yeah it was amazing fake vomit on the instruments fake vomit on the instruments fake poop we also had fake poop and <laughs> we also had a huge vat of Vaseline that we would always sneak in each other's suitcases. So they'd like open up your, why is my suitcase so heavy? And then you'd open it up with other people around and they'd be like, God, you have this huge vat of Vaseline in your bag. <laughs> Just stupid stuff. Lucas was the drummer. He had this little junk drum set. So we'd always try to position the poop someplace where he didn't see it after sound check before the show so he'd have to look at it the whole show and he couldn't <laughs> anytime like get the poop off of his <laughs> but I think a lot of that was Zoe's fault because she started doing that way back in belly dance superstars because the shenanigans started because we would do the same show for like two years so you get to the point where you know you could do it and not even really be paying attention so then we started doing other things like so one of the things that would always happen is marty would always position herself right before jelena's drum solo 
right before Jelena would go out, Marty would go, Jelena, don't fuck it up this time. Jelena <laughs> would always be like, bah, and laugh. And then Zoe started making sandwiches and hiding them amongst the pillows on the set, on the stage, because for some <laughs> reason, it would just bring us joy to know that there were sandwiches. <laughs> I don't know why. I mean, you do what you can with what you've got. So we would just mess with each other. And Marty would make faces when she would turn around that only I could see that were terrifying. And then I couldn't go on. I'd have to like pull myself together to keep going. Or one of my favorite things to do would be sometimes the stages were small. So the dancers would be right up against the wings so that they could hear you if you were standing in the wings. You could get yourself in the position where you could talk at them and there was nothing they could do about it. You could practically talk right in their ear and they had to just keep smiling. And that was fun. And okay, last one I'll tell you is Zoe and I used to have a who could be the grossest contest. It was good where you know how when musicians are on stage and they're smiling and talking to each other and it looks like they're having a pleasant conversation. You're like, oh, what are they talking about? They're looking at the audience like, oh, look how beautiful the audience is or isn't this a great. That's not what we were talking about at all. We were seeing if we could totally gross each other out, like (laughs) say the grossest thing that would make the other person go, oh, gross, but just look like we were having a lovely, elegant lady time back there with our drums. (laughs) Uh, You know, you find your own ways to entertain yourself on the road. We didn't have iPhones, you know. We had to use what we had. (laughs) Fake poop. Mm -hmm. Fake poop, Mm -hmm. fake vomit, and vats of Vaseline. Mm -hmm. My God. That'll take you far. So we're recording this interview in March 2023, and the Mega Massive 2023 starts soon. And I'm super excited to head out to Vegas and see Ebony and Zoe Jakes and Amy Sigil dance in person for the first time. I've never seen any of them dance in person. Oh, my God. Yes. And so they are just a few of the incredible instructors that we can also learn from in Datura Online, which Mm -hmm. is an incredible resource for dancers. And it must have taken a ton of heart and time to grow Datura to the size that it is now. What motivated you to create Datura online back when so little structured belly dance instruction was even available online? Well, part of it was, it was like my first bout with ageism. I think I was about to turn 40. And my partner at the time, I was talking about retiring. And he's like, well, you don't have to retire. You can teach. And I was like, well, I don't know. And so he was like, well, let's brainstorm about it. So we sat down and started brainstorming different ways that Basically, I could feel useful, I guess. And the first idea was that I would just put my work online and that there would just be sort of a video library. And then he was like, no, it shouldn't be just about you. It should be about there's really nothing out there for fusion dancers. And so I asked a bunch of my friends and people were willing to be filmed. And one of the things that I felt really good about that I still feel really great about is that I wanted to create a platform that wasn't just for fusion dancers, but had many different styles. Because even though it wasn't so much that you had to choose a camp and stay in that camp by that point, there's still a little bit of it. I mean, there still is, there's still remnants of it, but I feel like there's more crossover now where, you know, a fusion dancer is excited to take an Egyptian workshop now and learn more about all kinds of styles of dance. That was one reason that I was really excited to do it. And another reason was that I had done DVDs before and the person that benefited was the person that 
filmed the DVD. There were fair deals at the time, but I felt like my DVD is super successful or my video is really successful, then I should also share in that success as an artist. I just felt like for so long, the managers and promoters that were making and selling the work for the artists were not sharing the benefits with the artists, at least in dance. And so I was really excited to create a structure where everybody could benefit. And that continues to this day. And we release content every single week and have for almost 11 years. So there's a lot of stuff on there. And it's a little challenging sometimes because cameras were what cameras were 11 years ago. And now we've got 4K and 8K and stuff is super crisp and really clean. And it's amazing how stuff that did not look muddy at all at the time, it looked crisp. I look at it now and I'm like, oh my God, it looks practically blurry just because that was the resolution we had back then. But the content is still strong. We might refilm some stuff. But yeah, it's been an incredible resource. And I was involved in lending ideas, but my partner really did most of the work for getting it up and going. And we parted ways in 2015. We were romantically involved too. And I had to decide, I mean, I've never run a business before. Did I want to pull a plug on everything if he's leaving? Or do I want to learn how to do this? And I decided that I would learn how to do this and we are still in business. So that's great. And we just moved the studio and that's like a dream. I can't even really talk about it because it's so exciting still after three years of being in there. So yeah, I'm just grateful. I never thought that I could do any of this. And of course, I'm not doing it all. My team is the most incredible team. If you're listening to this, you know who you are. Incredible people that are super dedicated and take a lot of personal pride in the success of it. It's not just a job to them. They're passionate about Deter Online and they've really invested their lives into it basically. So yeah, it's incredible. I feel super lucky that it happened. Nice. Releasing new content every week for 11 years. That's incredible. The way that you've structured it so that it's not just the video producer that used to get the biggest benefit, but that it's spread out to more people that are artists. So one of the things that that we do that is unique is we license documentaries in addition to having fitness content and dance content and talks and interviews and music classes and programs. And the team releases what they call DO Daily. So there's a different playlist every single day that is unique, that is multiple teachers. So it's like a warm up and then a primary topic and then a cool down every single day that's mixed up from the content that we have on the site. We also have live classes now. We just live streamed this morning with Isaiah and Johnny, who are like the burlesque kings basically of Portland. They're incredible. And so we're going to have our first drama class on Thursday that Johnny's going to be teaching. We have a ton of different kinds of content and you can have a favorites list and we have programs. And one of the things I'm really excited about, we just started doing is chaptering out choreographies so that you can be like, oh yeah, I want to do that second combo and go right there rather than having to try to find it. Like we used to have to do with my old school DVDs. Yeah. Which is great. We have from Zoe's flow drills, which is like a two and a half hour butt busting, super intense to what we call daily boosts that are like 10 minutes every day. And one of the things that we do annually that I love is we have a January program that a bunch of people do 
all together and they post and share their daily experience with it. And if they get all the way through the program, they get a patch. And just today I saw that someone shared, she's doing beadwork on her patches and making them bead medallions. And there's like, I don't know, five or six years worth of these patches. It's starting to feel like these annual challenges are really helping people into their practice, but they're also getting these like Girl Scout patches, these patches for achievements that they can look at and think, oh my God, I do this every year. And then we have a DO dance challenge every spring where people can choose. Generally, we do three dances and then we splice them all together at the end of the challenge. And we choose the winner at random because of the way that I personally feel about competitions. I think that they sometimes can inspire people, but sometimes they have the opposite effect on people too. So we like to do it by random and then see all of the work that comes out of it. And then we also have a makeup costume challenge every year. So yeah, it's got tons of stuff on it. And there's so many things that I want to do with it. It's such an incredible platform, but it's not the only job that I have. There's also eight elements that's coming up in just two weeks, which is the two-year training program. Well, you can get through it in one year if you want. And that takes a ton of attention. And then I'm also still dancing and wanting to travel. So yeah, there's a lot going on, even if I don't know what costume to wear. <laughs> Tell us more about Eight Elements. Eight Elements is a four phase program, and each phase focuses on something different. I wanted to teach people basically a lot faster than I learned, which was, you know, 25 years of ambling around. I'm like, there's a faster way to do this. But also, the fourth phase that I am excited about every time I get to teach it is the teacher training phase where I get to pass on some of the philosophy that was passed to me through my Vinny Yoga training with Gary Craftso, which is really about bringing the practice to the individual and the practice really only having value in the way that it serves the individual and what they want to get out of their dance experience. So it's a combination of general compositional principles and safety in your personal practice and aesthetic development and performance if you choose to perform. And I use Datura style belly dance as the dance form. That's an example of how one person developed a style, that one person being me. And so if someone wants to become a Datura style teacher and teach that style, they can. But that's not the primary purpose of the program. The primary purpose is to use Tura style as an example to show people how I made something that made me crazy with happiness. And if they want to use that example as a springboard to create their own work, then that's so exciting to me. I love seeing that people end up either becoming a Tura style teacher or sometimes Belly dance is like the gateway drug to other dance forms and they end up not even belly dancing anymore because they found another dance form that lights them up even more. But without belly dance, they wouldn't have gotten there. So that's just as exciting to me. So yeah, it's a lot. It's my baby for sure. Nice. Back when I first asked you to be on this podcast, back in early 2022, you were working with a coach and processing cultural appropriation and fusion and your life. And you did this deep dive in your bedtime stories series on YouTube. And in the 21st episode, you again mentioned your coach's clarity. You said, 
their desire to bring clarity, compassion, and unity to the world. Mm. And it's so beautiful. You said that she sometimes drops a bomb of love and clarity that melts all of these defenses that you have. I love how you phrase that too. Are you up for sharing one of these bombs that your coach has dropped on you that might also help us grow? Oh God, it's just like every week I'm still seeing her and it's just astounding to me how consistently I end up with my jaw in my lap because she's a very unusual combination of of things where I feel like someone who can so clearly see how racism and white supremacy can affect cultural appropriation, someone who can see that so clearly and has her own personal experiences with it, can continue to maintain such compassion and gentleness. And, you know, every time I think I've learned something, then there's another layer. What I'm starting to see is that this idea of the West being the best is like alcoholism. (laughs) I was raised with the idea. I didn't want to look the way that I looked. I wanted to look a different way. And I had ideas about what was mine and what wasn't mine. And there's all of these structures that were unconsciously in place and are still unconsciously in place in my life where I just didn't understand how my actions were affecting other people. Right now, what we're working on that has been really illuminating is creating a space where everyone feels welcome. And there are things that I will never experience. I am an American in America. And we were talking about how to help people feel represented in the dance studio and to feel comfortable with however they look in the dance studio. When you go into a space where you feel welcome, you know it. And when you go into another space where you're like, ooh, do I belong here? I don't know if this is, you know, can I sit down? Should I be comfortable here? You can feel that too. And I was thinking about my experience before and after my dad died, where if I was talking to someone who had lost a parent, I was almost afraid of them, where I'd be like, oh God, that must be so intense. I can't even imagine what that's like. And I wouldn't want to say the wrong thing. So I wouldn't want to even really talk to them. And then once my dad passed, when I talked to someone that lost a parent, it's like this sinking in and this relaxation of, yeah, I know. You don't even have to say anything. You don't have to demonstrate your compassion or you don't have to make a big thing about how you understand it or I hope you feel welcome here. We want to welcome everyone who's lost a parent here. It's not like some big demonstration of how much I care. It's very different. Hey, come in, exhale. This place is for all of us. So her helping me see the difference between performative inclusion and knowing myself and my own life experiences enough to be able to connect with people on a real level. That's the crux of the work that I'm doing with her. She's always helping me put my willingness to have that connection with people ahead of my fear of being disliked. (laughs) That one's deeper than we realize. Performative inclusion part. Uh, I think that's really great for people to even make that distinction. Because people might think that the performative inclusion is enough. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's so confusing. She kind of guides me into the feeling of it. Because on the surface, you're like, Well, if you say welcome, does that mean they feel welcome? She's like, well, maybe you could ask them. I'm like, I don't know if I would want to ask because then would they feel weirder (laughs) about that? So always focusing on what's the right action to take. And she keeps being like, it's not about 
getting the good girl checklist or whatever. It's really about let's take a breath and think about what different people could be experiencing. What could that be like for people? What's it like for you? I mean, it's really always coming back to what's it like for you? What have you experienced when you walked into a room and people didn't want you there? We've all had that experience at least once. Well, most of us, I think. I've been listening to this podcast called The Art of Accomplishment and took Mm. this class that the podcaster teaches called The Connection Course. And just realizing he lives his life embracing intensity and Mm. connecting deeply with whatever is going on around him. And I hear that in a lot of people now more. I hear that in you and your desire to connect with people in an authentic way. And I just feel like that's really a way that we can move forward from all of this garbage that we've created in systemic racism and that we're steeped in so much yeah. to go back to actually connecting to each other. So I love that you're working with a coach. I think it's so valuable. Oh my God, it is. I love her. Mm-hmm. It's been years now. And I'm like, wow, this is a forever job, huh? <laughs> yeah, right. Never stops. Yeah. Now let's take a moment to dote on delicious whole food that makes us dancers glow. Featured light in my body food. So let's end with something we can eat. You recently said something like dance is more like making food than painting a picture. And I loved that. I love cooking and I loved thinking about how dance is more like a hands-on, like eat it now than creating something that lasts forever, kind of paint a picture situation. So what is one vegan whole food that you love? Kind of obsessed with Ezekiel bread. Yeah, it's the stuff you get in the freezer. I couldn't eat wheat for a long time because it would give me a stomach ache. And then I learned that pasta made in Italy doesn't give me a problem, which is fascinating. They must make it totally differently there. And Ezekiel bread doesn't give me any problems. And I can't believe how long I've been eating two pieces of Ezekiel every day. I just never get tired of it. It's so delicious. So yeah, that's my favorite vegan. It has wheat, but it's all sprouted grains. There's no flour. My daughter has a wheat allergy. She's three. And Mm. today I was feeding her corn tortillas for dinner. And Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my God, they're wheat corn tortillas. I've never seen anything like that. She got her hives and everything. I was like, for real? I know she's our right now. But I was like, really, I did that. But Ezekiel bread, that sounds awesome. I'm definitely going to try that. They have wheat in them, but it's sprouted. They're flourless, but there is wheat in it. But I think that they may have some that don't have wheat. Okay, cool. I will look into it. Okay. Awesome. And apples. Oh, and and apples. apples. I was born in Washington State, babies. There you go. (laughs) I'm in upstate New York. I was born in the apple orchard up here. Yeah. Yeah. Rachel, I don't even know how to even begin thanking you thank <laughs> for, you for this conversation this is great and just for everything that you've given the dance world the dance community how much you've inspired us just fashion wise if nothing else <laughs> if movements all aside the, you know theory and philosophy just what you've presented visually to all of us has been so stunning and i just truly appreciate who you are and what you've created. And I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for being on this podcast and for being a dancer that we can all admire. Well, thank you. And I just want to say one thing is that the look, that was all Marty Love. I can't (laughs) take credit. I'm glad that you enjoyed what I was wearing, which is basically me being like, what are we wearing now, Marty? (laughs) Just so (laughs) you know. That's a good friend right there. That's a good friend. Oh, man. Yeah, she was very generous with her ideas. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me and thank you for your patience and getting me on the show in the first place. Yes. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Please subscribe and let your friends know what you got out of this show. 
dance with me on YouTube, listen to the music I've selected for you on Spotify, and try some free vegan recipes on AliciaFree.com. This is Alicia Free, hoping this show helps you feel a little lighter.